Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Wednesday, April 5th, and I'm Stephen Love, Program Director for Environment Initiatives at the Cleveland Foundation, and moderator for tonight's conversation. We're at the Happy Dog in Gordon Square for the City Club's monthly Take On series, and today we're taking on environmental justice. It's been almost two months since a Northbrook Southern freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. Today, the community is still reeling. Columbiana County, where East Palestine is located, is no stranger to environmental concerns. The city of Salem is home to the Nice Chemical Superfund site, and nearby East Liverpool is home to a hazardous waste incinerator with a spotty past filled with lawsuits and air quality violations. And just last month, the same incinerator was slated to burn soil contaminated by the derailment. We now know that exact same train made its way through Cleveland, as well as many other major cities and communities that are facing their own longstanding challenges with environmental hazards. And add to this, thousands more were impacted by the smoke plume generated by the chemical burnoff. And so the derailment and ensuing environmental disaster only underscores that we have so much more work to do to realize a more equitable and just environment for all. So joining me on stage to explore this topic are four panelists who work on the ground and in their organizations in direct response to East Palestine and the work that's happening there, um, and also aim to build healthier, more environmentally equitable and just communities. So joining me, we have Emily Baca, Vice President, <laughs> Vice President of Public Affairs at the Ohio Environmental Council. Welcome, Emily. We have Kim Foreman. Let me hear. Kim is the Executive Director of Environmental Health Watch. We have Divya Sridhar. She is Manager of Climate Resiliency and Sustainability at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. And finally, we have Daniel Winston. That's <laughs> him. Co-Executive Director at River Valley Organizing. And thank you for making the trip up to Cleveland today. So if you have any questions for our panelists, uh, you can text them to 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work them in the second half of the program. Members and friends, once again, please welcome me in our joining our panelists here at the Happy Dog. So let's, let's uh, start the conversation. Uh, Kim, I think it would be helpful if we you know, took a step back first to put some definition to what we're talking about when we say environmental justice. You know, how, how did we get to where we are today? I think to understand that really requires a, a better sense of that terminology. So could, could you help us start there? Thank you. So um, technically we need to talk about historical um, systems, historical practices, and value-based decision-making. When it comes to policies, who's important, and how do we care about the communities that we say we want to serve? So I think if, if you haven't heard about redlining ever in your life, please look it up. Um, <laughs> this was a practice sanctioned by the government, banks, and um, to 
separate people from being able to choose where they want to live and segregate the community. And now we see in, impacts and effects of redlining today in the divested um, communities. And we didn't get here you know, by mistake. This was also purposeful actions and policies that actually created unjust and uh, unfair you know, living conditions. So I wanna talk about environmental justice and the actual definitions. I feel as though we all come from different perspectives. And oftentimes when I bring up the term environmental justice, I feel the go-to is fighting a polluter, which is important, or fighting against something. But I really wanna talk about the definition and highlight some key words and components of environmental justice and actually the way I like to see it practiced. So environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income with respect to the development and implementation and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. What I often see is the meaningful involvement is always left out. The development from inception to execution and implementation is often left out. Many rooms, we go to the table, we're talking about the people impacted or mm -hmm. looking at data about the impacted or we're creating solutions without the impacted. And people who are suffering from the disinvestment or suffering from the issues specifically are often not invited to the table to craft solutions or um, proactively decide what happens in their communities. And so this is a practice that we really have to be intentional about, just as we're intentional about making decisions. So who's at the table? Are people involved from inception to execution? So we can fight the polluter or we can stop them from even placing things in the communities, especially poor and minority communities in the first place because we are organized um, and understand what environmental justice really is. And the meaning of full involvement includes the opportunity to participate in decisions and activities that may in fact um, affect their environment and or health. Um, it's the published contribution that can influence the regulatory agency's decision, community concerns, will be considered in the decision-making process and decision-makers will seek out and facilitate the involvement of those potentially affected. And we can look around and see if that's actually happening. So this is where we need to go. So I'll stop there as a level set or definition. Thank I you for asking. I appreciate that uh, level setting context setting, Kim, and, and I think we think about some of the, the cumulative impact we see in our low-income communities and uh, communities of color when we think about environmental justice, it's because there's been that uh, left out of the, people left out of the process over uh, many decades and we have that legacy. Um, and certainly as I shared in the opening d remarks, um, you know, the East Palestine and Columbiana County, you know, is no stranger to the legacy, right? The legacy of environmental justice, uh, just, just as many communities are here uh, in the Cleveland uh, region. Uh, but Daniel, I, I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about a more acute environmental uh, justice disaster that's you know, unfolded, uh, which is the, the derailment. Um, 
obviously we've seen in the news a lot of conversation. Um, there was actually, I think, just a, an NPR program uh, this, this morning, uh, another uh, national coverage of the derailment disaster. I wonder if you could help us, though, understand what's happening on the ground uh, today. You know, we're two months after the, the, the toxic plume, uh, which I think many think of as the beginning of the disaster versus just the derailment. Um, but what's happening on the ground, and, and how is River Valley organizing, you know, pl playing a role in uh, s supporting communities so that they do have a voice in the process forward here? Yeah, um, you know, two, we're two months anniversary was two days ago of the derailment. Um, and so where we're at today in East Palestine is we s basically have as many questions as we did the day the derailment happened. Um, well, let's say this. We had as many questions as we did when the controlled burn <laughs> happened. Um, yeah. We still don't know uh, what's in the soil. That um, We don't know uh, what's going on in the air. And there has been testing, but um, the issue with the testing that has happened is that while we're testing people and we're saying it's okay to go back, we have people having independent testing, independent um, going to their doctors, and the doctors are saying, like, you have this in your system. And we are being told that, no, that can't be in your system because that wasn't there. Um, and so someone um, is not telling the truth about what's going on. And so where we're at two months later is the people of East Palestine are a, a strong people who care about their town, right? They're a town of less than 4,000 people, um, and they are fighting to make sure that they're not, um, not heard. And so I did an interview maybe a week after the derailment in, on Fox News, and at the end of the um, at the end of the interview, I said, "You will not treat us like Flint, Michigan. Mm. You do not get to forget about us once the ratings go down. Once you don't get money for this, I said, you will hear our voice. I said, if I have to bring people to your offices and we have to lay down in your offices just to get you to still talk about." East Palestine, this derailment and what's happening to these people, we will continue to do that. And so um, we are just lucky that the people of East Palestine uh, won't give up this fight. And so they have organized. Uh, we are River Valley organizing. We believe that in order for a community to be liberated from the environmental degradation and also social degradation that happens so much in America, that it has to come from the community. And so um, a lot of us from River Valley organizing are from Columbiana County, but most of us are not from East Palestine. Mm -hmm. And so what that took was actually hiring people actually in East Palestine to do the work. Because one of our main things, and one of the main things I always tell our organization is that we're not to helicopter in and we're not save a cop. We don't do that. We do not save people. They save themselves. We give them the tools in order to know how to fight to make sure that they can win their fights. And so the people of East Palestine have organized and fought with the EPA, with the CDC, with the State House, with the governor, with U.S. reps, with U.S. senators, 
and now the White House. And so while they are in the middle of their fight and we are fighting with them, there are a lot of things that need to be done that um, aren't getting done. And why they're not getting done is this, because this is not an East Palestine issue. Um, this train derailment, just like um, was said earlier, this train came straight through Cleveland. And it just was lucky that Cleveland wasn't the place that this train derailed. And so as, um, as we tell the people, um, our job is to, at RVO is to illuminate that this is not a Columbiana County issue. This is not a rural town issue. This is not a small town issue. This is a train issue. And then, bigger than that, this is a petrochemical issue. Um, and so we need to make sure that we are taking this fight to the place it needs to be. So how do we do that? One, we take care of the people of East Palestine. They're the ones getting sick right now, right? They're the ones, I just, just the other day, I think our comms director, our comms director was back there, but we, were, we just had a conversation where uh, we were talking about their children who are now um, bleeding uh, internally, like throwing up blood, um, bleeding in their ears and things of that sort. And there are people with now COPD issues and lung issues. We have tons of people um, that have been to the doctors and they said that their lungs were burnt by chemicals, right? And so we have to take care of those people. That's our main issue first because these are the people who are getting sick. Our second issue is to organize around uh, our government and getting our government officials statewide, local, and also US-wide um, to put you know, regulations on these companies, right? Not just the train, though. Like, we're stopping at the train, but it's not just the train, but these petrochemical companies need to know how they can um, disperse this and how it can travel and what is, what can be legal and not harmful to people, right? And then our third thing is we don't forget that the boogeyman in this is Norfolk Southern. Like, they are the boogeyman. They're the ones who, who lobby to get regulations taken off of them so they can do more work, make more money, and harm people, right? We were in the, um, the Senate in March had a, um, had a hearing. And while Alan Shaw, the CEO of Norfolk Southern, was giving his testimony, and literally he was saying that we've done things to make sure things like this won't happen again. We are making safeguards. And as he was saying that, uh, West Virginia Senator uh, Cap Capito was like, I just got a text that uh, train derailed in Alabama. And everybody was like, ooh. But like, we allowed them to do that because we need them to move product and we think that they're bigger than this country. And so our politicians allow them to do what they need to do, right? And so they lobby, they spend money, and then we are the people who suffer and hurt from that. And so the people of East Palestine are leading a fight, not for just East Palestine, but for this nation, that we are not going to let big business, big rail, if you can call it that, big rail uh, dictate to us how much they're willing to harm us for their profit. Yes.
Daniel, I, I really appreciate you, you sharing that, and and the the our hearts go out to to all the community members in in East Palestine. We're thinking of them, and um, certainly the the work, as you said, is is much bigger than that. It's a it's a national issue. It's a it's a regional issue. It's a local issue here as well. I, I'm wondering uh, to our other panelists who haven't had a chance to to weigh in yet. Um, you know, as we think about uh, what's happening in East Palestine, you know, as Daniel said, it's you know it's a it's a real real issue more broadly, but are there other parallels uh, with some of the work that's happening across the state or across uh, the region here that we could draw? I, I've been reflecting on this question quite a bit, and I, I think where I land on this is that, you know, one of the similarities uh, that I see from uh, my grounding of environmental justice uh, history here in Cleveland and, and, and seeing what's happening on the ground in East Palestine is mm -hmm. that our systems have too often uh, prioritized polluters over people, and they've prioritized profit over people, and we haven't put the health of our communities first. And I, I hope that one of the differences we see in this moment is that there is there is quick action, uh, that there is quick action on regulation, um, and there is quick action to protect our communities, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the communities that our, our kids play in. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with that, um, Emily. I think um, there are several parallels that you can draw um, to things that are happening in Cleveland. Right here in Slavic Village, we see our communities really breathing that suit every day. And you know, um, the, the residents there talk about being able to run their fingers um, mm -hmm. on the windowsill and see that soot deposit there, which is the soot that's actually depositing in their lungs as well. So when you talk about those cumulative impacts of people bearing the brunt, I think we see those um, how our regulations can really flip that over to say, let's not prioritize profits over people, but think about how we impact these regulations so that we understand the small cumulative impacts of all these permissible amounts that really add up into a sum total that really impact one over the other. Because I think we are looking at it in disparate numbers. If you look at it that way, everybody is you know, in compliance and we've made that, you know, happen. Um, there is an opportunity for us to think about it. There are 14 different cities across the country that are thinking about these kinds of ordinances to see how you can impact this so that our communities are safer and you have better tighter regulations around this. And I think the other tool that we really have is how do we expand the table so we can have conversations with different people around these things at the same time. So you have decision makers, you have people from the community bringing those solutions in. It's a systems-wide thing. You have to go top down and you have to approach it bottom up at the same time. So you need, you need um, qualitative and quantitative data to actually make those solutions. And how big is that table that we can set? Because work happens at the speed of trust and you really need to bring all those people at that time. And when you have, um, for pollutants, you could be testing for air in some place, but you could be completely missing the ball on what you're testing on for water. You could not be detecting what's there. So taking a 360 degree view of what you can, what's, what's happening, and then approaching these things from different angles is really important for us to look at it. I mean, so our, our, our community right here is suffering from being one of the largest impacted um, asthma community. Um, we are one of the worst um, air quality communities in the country. Um, so it flares up, and we know why these things are happening. 
and um, we have an incinerate, I mean, we have a rub rubber recycling um, company right there in Slavic Village. We have, when you have these businesses, all of them co-locate because you feel like you can add the benefits of, you can, you're, you're maximizing your operations, you're maximizing your logistics because you're prioritizing your profits, and this is where we end up. So again, trucking is high in Slavic Village, is high in, you know, all these things add up. So I wonder where, where where do we go from here, right? What what maybe Kim uh, and Daniel could weigh in. I know Daniel, you talked a little bit about some of the you know tools and strategies in real time, but um, you know wh where do we go from here to realize a more equitable and just environment for all? What are, what are some of the the strategies that we need to be thinking about deploying? I think just like um, we're talking about telling the truth first <laughs> and not pretending. Yeah. <laughs> that um, this is gonna be challenging and hard because it's, it's, I like to set tables. I love bringing multi-sector groups together. <laughs> but it's not that easy, but I'm, I'm dedicated to doing it because that's the only way you get comprehensive solutions from the systems level and from the grassroots. But um, one thing I wanted to add is uh, we've been fighting lead poison for decades and if you haven't heard already, <laughs> we are now at this systems solution um, public-private partnership really trying to prevent lead poison in Cleveland. We are always four times higher than the national average. One in four of our children are poisoned by the time they hit kindergarten. So we've been fighting for decades, right? And so Flint happens, this acute situation, and so now the tension, right? So we leverage that, but the issue is that you can't really see the lead, right? It's, it's making our kids sick every day. And so no one was really paying attention because a lot of black and brown children are poisoned. So we got some political will, but it's a comprehensive strategy and a new system that we've created to actually tackle the lead crisis in Cleveland. It's been done in Rochester. I think we need to look toward examples of successes <coughs> and then get to work to make sure that everyone is at the table, literally. Right, it's not that hard if we are really um, um, dedicated and committed to actually the work and not positioning ourselves, right? So I think it's, it's really coming together and then when we built the list at Cleveland Coalition, it was a values was first. We all signed on to values before we got started with the work. So I think that's important, these comprehensive solutions and we got to deal with the systems change approach in order for this to really work and just be honest and tell the truth at the table and to the decision makers. Um, where do we go from here um, is that people are going to realize they have the power and, and this is what RVO is about. Um, we started RVO 10 years ago because we saw a need that communities did not understand that they had the power to change policy. Whether that was voting someone out of office and voting someone in that um, thought like you in these areas, or if that was pulling petitions together and getting on the ballot yourself um, as a, you know, whatever initiative and changing the law by the people, right? and making the government um, understand what's going on. And so 
I think, and what we're working on right now, is how do we show, we have, at RVO, we have about six different initiative campaigns going on right now. Five of them are about environmental justice, and four of them are um, us in a community um, trying to get council to change their mind about some things. And I live in a town called Wellsville, 3,300 people in it. And just like you were talking about the window seal, if you went to my house today, you could take your hand on the windowsill, and I clean it every day because the dirt and the soot right there, right? And so what we're doing is called the Wellsville Law Project, where we are trying to put ramifications on these trucking companies and the coal companies that are bringing this coal in and things like that. The issue is, as we know, coal is king in Ohio. You know, gas, coal, you know, it's king. Like, our state house is going to let them do whatever they want to do because they're going to get the kickbacks what they need to get kicked back, right? And so how do we, as organizations, help communities put parameters on these, these, um, these companies without the state house saying we're attacking just coal companies? Because just close to Cleveland just a couple years ago, right, they said, you know, they – they outlawed plastic bags and the state house was like, ah, you know what? We need our plastic bags all of a sudden. So let's make a law, right? Home and rule so, goes so far. Right? Like, 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 it was just like silliness, right? And so the issues is, um, I come from the political side and we're on a C3 thing, so I can't talk about, you know, different things. But I'll say this, that a lot of my friends say that Ohio, especially around the country, is a red state, right? In Ohio, we get offended by that. We say, we're not a red state, we're a gerrymander state, right? I don't agree with that either, because if we were a gerrymander state, the executive branch of our um, state would actually be people that we, we really liked if it was gerrymandered, right? What the issue is, is we're a state that doesn't vote. Yep. So our jobs as you know, if you're on a C4 side or, you know, just yourself is to make sure people are voting. And the only way you get people to vote is get them excited. So you have to give them something to vote about. And so in these small towns like I come from, you need to put stuff on the ballot to get people excited about taking their power back, right? Because they're not getting excited about candidates. Candidates aren't exciting people. And listen, I ran in 2020 and got destroyed, and I didn't excite people as much as I thought I was. I... I thought I was really exciting, right? <laughs> but apparently the voting populace didn't believe that, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but issues are bringing people out because people want to fight for themselves. No longer are we going to let a man or a woman go to the state house or be the mayor and fight for us. We are going to fight for ourselves. And so this is what I think the next step is. How do we get people to see that they're in the fight fight for themselves, and do this in a way that brings these values, I call them progressive values, that we, that we know Ohioans have, how do we get them to the polls? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, Daniel. I'll vote for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you excite me. So <laughs> you talked, both Kim and Daniel, you talked about like how do we build political will, how we you know, build channels for advocacy. How do we build a political will to then take action on policy? But what, what are some of those policy tools specifically? So Emily, Divya, maybe you could chime in 
in our last few minutes, talk about like what are some of the policy tools we're seeing at the local, state, federal level, specific to preventing East Palestine from happening again, uh, but also maybe more broadly when we think about you know how how do we build a more equitable and just future for our communities. You want to start, Didier, or you want me to jump in? Well, I can I can do a quick you know um, a couple uh, things. I, I feel definitely I brought up this uh, conversation around cumulative impacts um, ordinance. It is really looking back at all our um, permits, permissible amounts for of uh, pollutant levels in uh, for each of these businesses, and then really looking at it and saying what is the cumulative impact this is really add to this neighborhood. So when it reaches a threshold. Um, what do you, um, how do you say this is not okay for my community? It's really important for communities to come together to recognize what is the, what is needed in that community and what's regenerative. It's enough, we're at a point where we don't need any more of these regular businesses, but we need to sort of s uh, right back the wrongs that have been um, done. So you need to have some of these wholesome policies in place. I think cumulative impacts have been some that uh, other cities have been talking about. In terms of policy, I think of that as one of those um, you know, solid ones that we can p potentially explore here at a local level, especially um, at our city where we haven't um, changed our air pollution codes in a really long time. It's I think almost 35 years since we've updated our codes. It's about time when we do something, it's an opportunity to really look at it at a, at a deeper level. Um, so that's, that's something that comes to mind, but also thinking about the tools that we have in our uh, planning toolkit that we can really uh, robustly engage um, the different decision makers and our community members in a way to sort of put back their solutions into um, our planning processes so it really works for them. I think making sure that we are actually um, taking that feedback and then transferring it back to them, saying, are we listening to you okay? And are these solutions, um, are, are these the solutions that are you know, going to work for you and how do we sort of take those and bring them back to you? So I think using these two tools and, um, and aligning as many partners as we can while we do these planning processes so we are not working in these silos, um, um, I, I think those are some things, good starting points for us to even consider because right now we are still in our working in our own little um, heads. And, and I appreciate that, Divya, because I think that that's where I've seen a lot of progress is when we come together on these issues as, as grassroots organizations, those who work in, in the grass tops uh, spaces as well is, is working on those solutions. And so as I'm thinking about this, um, you know, how do we prevent uh, a tragedy like this from happening again when it comes to there's a lot of, there's a lot of work going on around rail safety regulations right now. And this is, this is not, um, not an area of, of expertise for me, but just kind of sharing with the with the crowd what you can be doing um, and, and kind of thinking about ways to advocate for good policy. So at the federal level, um, we had uh, we have bipartisan movement in the in the Senate and the House uh, on the Railway Safety Act introduced by Senators Brown and uh, Vance of Ohio. Uh, that is uh, really about uh, making sure that we have enhanced safety. Uh, procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials. Um, there's also the Railway Accountability Act that was introduced by, by uh, Senator Brown and uh, colleagues in Pennsylvania. Uh, in the House, there's the uh, Reducing Accidents and Locomotives Rail Act. Uh, and and those, are, those are pieces of legislation that are in immediate response to, to what happened in East Palestine. And I know that Daniel and others have been in, in D.C actively actively encouraging uh, action on, on some of these pieces. Um, at the State House, there was uh, provisions that were recently passed in the State Transportation Budget Bill 
Um, and here in this community, so Council, Council Member Spencer, who is, is my council member, um, uh, held hearings here in Cleveland about, about the train that came right through Cleveland and, and what we need to do as a city to make sure that we can prevent such an accident from happening here on the shores of Lake Erie. Um, but I think if, I, if you zoom out from rail regulation to more environmental justice regulation and, and what that looks like, we're seeing uh, historic investments at the federal level uh, from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, from the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris, uh, from, from the very first days have prioritized environmental justice yeah. uh, work uh, and science-based regulations. Uh, and and that's, really, that's really important. And I, I think, Kim, if we can go back to some of the lead work, right, there's, there's a through line there mm -hmm. where there's historic investments in replacing lead service lines, uh, the, the pipes that carry water from our main service lines to our homes. Um, Ohio is one of, uh, one of the states with the most lead service lines. And so there's funding at that federal level to, uh, to remove those and replace those lead service lines to uh, prevent that uh, environmental injustice, uh, to, to make sure that we have clean water to drink. We're seeing uh, similar investments when it comes to that uh, with H2 Ohio at the state level uh, to, again, uh, remove and replace those lead service lines. Uh, and we're seeing action on that here at, at the local level as well. So there's, there's some of those through lines, but there's, there's more action needed. There's more action at the state that's needed on these environmental justice regulations. Here in Cleveland, again, we um, are, are, are I, I think, really lucky that we have uh, uh, leaders at the county level and at the city level, so County Executive Ronain, uh, Mayor Bibb, who are prioritizing uh, environmental justice mm -hmm. in the work, uh, embedding that work throughout their administrations and really pursuing action when it comes to uh, uh, clean energy, uh, safe water, uh, planting more trees to help absorb some of those uh, air pollutants. There's, there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot there to be done, but there's, there's urgency. We, we can't keep waiting to take action on these pieces. We need to act now in order to, uh, in order to have those healthy communities for, for all of us. Yeah. And I'll add one more piece of shout out to um, a department for the city, the Division of Air. I, I just got an award from the EPA as well recently to um, do um, more granular um, monitoring of air in certain places. Um, and I think that's really important because they're going to hold advisories in the community to hear from people what they think the air is looking like, feeling like, and smelling like, and uh, feeling like in their lungs so that they can use this as an opportunity to then inform the, the permitting process. And I think having those kinds of opportunities here, paying attention to what are ways that we can participate in in terms of citizen science, ac uh, science actions or you know, other participatory process is really important for us to help feed that information back in. Um, so we can get the things that we need to um, get happening. Yeah. Well, before we formally transition to you all for some Q&A, um, I'd like to just ask all of our panelists, I think Emily touched on it a little bit, uh, but so what can folks in this room and on the live stream joining us, what, what can they do uh, to support overall the, the, the vision and goal of achieving a more just environment for, for all? or specific to the work of building a safer rail system in our communities? I, I, I think, again, um, reaching out to your elected officials at the local, state, and federal level and uh, talking about the issues that you care about. Daniel, to your point, we, we know
know we have we have the polling out there that that Ohioans care about our air, we care about our water, we care about our environment. Um, letting, letting those who represent you know that you care about those issues and that you wanna see action on those is, I, I think, an, an easy way to do that. Um, and it, there are organizations out there that can help you with that, RVO, Ohio Environmental Council, those across the board that um, can, can help support you in, in directing you to those, uh, those policies to advocate for. I would, I would like to add, I, I did, um, my former boss, Stu Greenberg, uh, used to work at the, work with the county mm. local emergency planning commission, and I called him up to get <laughs> a history lesson, and they've been working on this for decades around rerouting trains out of the urban environment for decades, and this is not a new conversation, um, very challenging to work with the rail systems, cutting employees, people are tired, you know, they're cutting costs, so that means it, it's just becoming this challenging uh, conversation with the railing company. So I think that joining efforts like that and with the city council to understand how we could reroute these trains locally because there was a report developed that literally modeled where the trains could go and rerouting. So I think that's an important thing to lift up is the safety protocols are good, but how can we actually reroute the trains mm -hmm. from driving right through our communities and our neighborhoods? And it, there's been, it's been done already, right? We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to pull that up and take another look at it and work with our local emergency planning commissions. I want to preach very much to the choir here in this room. I feel like, um, it's again, we have an amazing uh, council person here in our ward who was able to lift up this conversation and, um, and, and take it up. Um, I feel like, uh, so when we take these, these things that matter to us to our um, local levels, I think they, and, and if we, and again, we have to vote at every single election, right? Not just as those big ticket ones, go to all these um, smaller ones that those are the ones that really matter to us most because we're going to hear from them, we're, they're going to represent us and I think, Taking those issues to them, um, however that imp uh, impacts you, and voting is, I think, you know, the, the top things that I think will really help us uh, move some of these things for us. Everything they said, and I'm just going to add, um, there are tons of organizations that need your money. <laughs> uh, you know, my grandma used to tell me all the time, um, show me where you spend your money, I'll show you what you care about. So um, I often tell people, don't lie to me and tell me you care about something when you don't donate a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are about to begin the audience Q&A. So for our live stream audience, uh, again, I'm Stephen Love, the Program Director for Environment Initiatives at the Cleveland Foundation and moderator for tonight's conversation. Joining us again for a panel on environmental justice is Emily Baca, our Vice President of Public Affairs at the Ohio Environmental Council, Kim Foreman, Executive Director of Environmental Health Watch, Divya Sridhar, Manager of Climate Resiliency and Sustainability at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, and Daniel Winston, Co-Executive Director at River Valley Organizing. If you're here with us in person, you can line up next to the microphone to my left to ask your question. Thank you for demonstrating. If you are joining us virtually or perhaps a little microphone shy, 
Uh, you can text your questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will try to work them in. So thank you. Um, as, as everyone mucks up the courage to come ask yeah. their very important question, I'm going to start with a text question from one of our live stream viewers. It says, for the relocated residents of East Palestine, how are they faring with the cost of relocation and going on two months away from home? Do you think we are going to see an increasing number of enviro disaster refugees as infrastructure ages and policies gut equity? I guess I can answer the first part. Um, <laughs> the relocated uh, residents of East Palestine, um, I would say there are some that are living out of hotels right now, uh, but we have to remember that uh, East Palestine is an area that is very, very um, lacking in funds. It's a poor area, right? So people are actually living in East Palestine because it's hard to rent a new apartment. And let's just be honest, the housing market where it's at today, um, you really can't find some place to rent. You can't find some place to buy. And if you find it, it's probably out of your price range, right? And so um, Norfolk Southern is uh, reimbursing people. Um, and they get to pick and choose who they reimburse and how much they reimburse the people. So some people, uh, we have reports, um, that Norfolk Southern has given them $1,000 to uh, get a hotel for a week, right? Um, some people, we have report that they literally gave an uh, older couple $500 to get a hotel room for the week. And I said, I don't know where you get hotels at, but you can't find a Red Roof Inn for $500 in a week. So um, the relocation is something that we at RVO is taking very serious. Um, and what we're doing right now is we're trying to pressure our governor. Um, the governor has still not made a uh, disaster um, plan or just called the, called the uh, U.S. government and said that this is a disaster. And the U.S. government is not released uh, because of that to actually send FEMA to do what FEMA needs to do, right? We could do FEMA trailers, get people where they need to be, but because of the great governor of Ohio um, and his lack of uh, courage and leadership in this effort, um, the people are suffering, and so they are s still living and still getting sick um, in this. So that's what I would say. Um, if we were talking about where they're going, um, and what's going on, it's not really happening that much. So people are actually staying. Uh, for the fortunate people who can afford to leave, um, they're having to go back because their mother lives there still. Their brother lives there still. Um, their school is still there. And school is open, and you can't miss school, so their kid has to go to school. And some people are fortunate enough that they don't work a job or two jobs so they can keep their kid at home school, but a lot can't. Uh, thank you for, for the panel. Um, my question is, if, if the change comes from getting people to get out and vote, you're all environmental activists focused on environment, um, how do you engage with the arts community and getting artists engaged in talking about this? And, and I'm going to put in a plug right now. There is an exhibit at the Sculpture Center over in uh, University Circle right now called Permissible Dose. 
It is about air quality in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. and it's actually uh, an exhibit that is linked to the monitors in Pittsburgh, so when mm -hmm. air quality uh, monitors go off, scents that the artist created are actually being released in the gallery. Um, but another component of it is uh, uh, citizen air quality monitors as, as part of a project. So I guess uh, how do we, artists can bring lots of attention to things. Um, this needs lots of attention. Yeah. How do you work with the arts community when trying to bring attention to stuff? I'll, I'll start because I work with artists a lot. <laughs> um, I think um, one artist did approach me about doing something to um, talk about from his perspective environmental justice. So I will circle back and discuss that with him because he wanted to do an art exhibit about it. Um, in general, on my teams, I have a lot of artists that have a different perspective that are working through issues like food insecurity with me or lead poison. They're on my teams. They work with me. So um, I really value those perspectives from artists. But actually, you just brought that back, and I should just circle back. His name is Mr. So. He's a, a major graffiti artist in Cleveland and actually approached me about um, working on something to comment about environmental justice, and I think it's a good idea. Kim, I think you should plug Fresh Fest. Okay, too. so Fresh Fest is <laughs> September 9th, <laughs> and we really, um, Fresh Fest is, is more than just a, a celebration or music festival, but it's music, food, health, wellness, um, making sure people, um, vendors have economic kind of opportunity that live in the Central Kensington community. It's situated at um, um, Riddall Farm, which is an urban um, training center for agriculture, mm -hmm. a beautiful space and park, and we have people from all over the state attend, but it's also an introduction to uh, black and brown artists, whether they're culinary artists, visual artists, performing artists. Um, and so it's a, it's a way to say, hey, people in this community like culture and arts too. It's not just about who got shot yesterday. And so <laughs> we are sharing and lifting up different types of voices and different narratives. And that is one way to engage people and to show their power. It's just not about what's horrible happening in the community but lifting up voices and people that are actually activating there in their neighborhoods. So it's placemaking, and it's a beautiful um, representation of community coming together from all over the county, outside the county, and the state, and we have a really good time. And um, children, it's children-friendly, all of that. So that's enough, Emily, I'll be quiet. But um, I do encourage you to come see what it's about September 9th. Thank you for saying that. Hi. Um, while I recognize that the most urgent situation right now is these Palestine situation, it's certainly essential that we pay attention to prevention. And I think the things that are going on are, are very good. Um, I think of what we did in East Cleveland and with the help of Environmental Health Watch a number of years ago, we pressured the medical center company to instead of building a coal-fired power plant mm -hmm. to putting up a photovoltaic uh, array at the border of University Circle and East Cleveland. <laughs> and so um, when I look at prevention now, I look around East Cleveland where I'm on the city council 
and we have a number of deteriorating railroad bridges. And so my concern, one of my major concerns, is to try to get those fixed. And we started talking about that last year, and it took a long time to figure out even who was responsible for these because you go to ODT and they're not, and then you go to somebody else and then they're not willing to tell you because it's not there. To it. But at any rate, we've made some progress in identifying who is responsible for some of these bridges, but so far have no progress in any sense of even getting the bridges formally inspected, much less repaired. And uh, I'd be happy to get any kind of uh, feedback on what you think we can do to take care of that. Thank you. I am not a rail safety expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I'm, I'm looking at some of my neighbors right now, and this is actually something that was talked about in our block club uh, today. And so I, I think that um, it's, a, it's, an, it's an issue to follow up on. I, I don't know who, who to go to or what to go to, but I, I do think that when we think about infrastructure um, in our country, there's, um, we are, we are, our infrastructure is failing in a number of ways. And so I think that's why so many of the investments from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and our local communities uh, working with, with good partners to make sure that we're able to utilize those funds to address some of those infrastructure challenges are so, so important. And so I don't have an answer to your specific question, but I think that um, I'm, I'm really heartened to see that, that focus on, on infrastructure spending and ways that are important to meet uh, meet our, our climate action needs and and meet the meet meet the needs of the community. Hello, my name is Randy Cunningham, and um, for the last it seems innumerable years, I've been researching uh, grassroots environmental organizing, basically. West Virginia, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and all. And uh, from my experience, when I hear the word in compliance, I interpret it as run for your lives, <laughs> okay? Uh, now, the one thing that I saw has been driving me nuts about this Norfolk, Norfolk Southern thing is all these people worrying about Norfolk Southern but you don't realize that Norfolk Southern is part of, is an integral part of the past 20 years of state policy regarding fracking, injection wells, mm -hmm. pipelines, and all, okay? So it's a lot more. I think a lot of the politicians are pointing at Norfolk Southern because they don't want anybody pointing back at them because what they've created. Uh, the other thing is that if you complain about that infrastructure that's been, been created, or if you, uh, or worse of all, if you protest it or anything like that, the state has passed a series of laws to criminalize dissent mm -hmm. in Ohio, okay? And nothing is more uh, 
it, nothing is, is, is a better example than Aaron Brockovich, who has chops on the environmental front that few people I know can, can match. She was determined to be a special interest terrorist by a law enforcement agency in Ohio that works with the Department of Homeland Security. So things are very dangerous for protests nowadays, especially when the, you have the uh, state of Ohio basically having a, uh, a, having a, um, a policy of anything goes with guns. One of the big civil rights and civil liberties issues in this country is how the Second Amendment is harming the First Amendment. How do you have protests or rallies or anything like that? And you got a bunch of these goons around running around in camouflage with AR-15s. So uh, I'll quit now. I could go on all night. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for your work. Thank you. I don't like those goons either, by the way. <laughs> a little scary. Hi. Yeah, I appreciate that comment that preceded me and all of the great panel discussion, especially about policy and organizing. Um, something I would like to ask about is the role that labor policy plays in this. When we think about prevention, it's become clear that the railroad workers that wanted to strike at the end of 2022 were warning and knew about the dangers of the rail infrastructure and the scheduling that these large corporate railroad entities are doing, like Norfolk Southern and others. So my question simply would be, what do you see the role of labor policies in unions in addressing climate and environmental justice in Ohio? Sure. <laughs> um, I think labor is always one of the keys uh, in making great policy change in this country. Um, you can't pressure uh, policymakers without pressuring their pockets. You can't pressure their pockets without pressuring the people who um, give them money, right? And we'll just call it, you know, the dark money that. Um, goes with them so um, in especially in this um, with the Norfolk Southern and the railroad issues um, rail unions are going to play an important part in making sure that we hold um, these railroads accountable and then also hold our political people accountable because without without their workforce um, and also, we need them to tell us, like, what's going on. Like, oh, like, a lot of the things we've heard from East Palestine um, and why these things happen is because some workers told us, you know, um, this happened, you know, this far back, right? And we're like, oh, and then they told us not to do this. And so we would be oblivious to some of these things if we had not had um, the labor movement working um, for this issue. So they're a big part, and I think they're playing a big part right now. Um, unions are still the backbone of, you know, 
I think at least the progressive movement. Um, do I think they could be doing more? Yes, but that doesn't mean we don't like them, right? Um, but we also have to do better at calling people out for their mess and without saying like, oh, you don't like us anymore. So unions, I can say that you need to do a tad bit better job of doing what you're doing, but I can also say great job for doing some of the things that you've done already, right? Like it's not just a, you have to have both. How can kids help the environment? I would like to get a group of kids together and ask them how they could help the environment and then we support your ideas. The answers actually can come from you. No one wants to go after that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> she just yeah, shut yeah, it down. I feel bad following that one up. Uh, so I, I guess my question is, uh, you know, I heard repeatedly tonight people referencing regulations. And, you know, when we're talking about trains and interstate travel, we're generally talking about federal regulations. Uh, you know, the administrative state is a subsidiary of the executive branch. And since 1990, it's been Republican, Democrat, Democrat, Republican, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, and then question mark into the future. Do you think it's a wise long-term strategy to put so much faith in the regulatory state as opposed to statutory change? Or, yeah, well, I see you have an answer. But, you know, it, but it's like that's the answer you hear over and over and over again is that deregulation is the problem. But so long as you've chosen the administrative state as your vehicle, you're going to be left saying that so long as you put the weapon. It's a football, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to hear your response. I, I, I agree with you. Um, so I have been allowed, I don't know, I haven't really understood why they allowed me yet, uh, but they allowed me to go to the White House multiple times in the last month and a half, which is very awkward for me because I am an opinionated person, and oftentimes opinionated people don't, aren't allowed in halls of power, right? But one of the things I told them was this, um, that um, in almost a year and a half, you might not be in the White House anymore, so you're not actually going to help me. Mm. Um, and if you get four more years, I'm not sure what happens four more years after that that lets some other person who doesn't agree with what I'm agreeing with, and they will strip the regulations that you have put on. Yeah. So the issue is that America, and I won't go on this long troll, but America has been in gridlock for so long that we think it's normal for our executive to make legislative um, decisions. I don't know why we absolve our legislators from actually making regulation and actually having to work together for the people that they get paid for and are voted on for by, but like we have to stop allowing the executive to make these executive orders and everybody gets so excited. It's like, oh, the new president's coming in and 55 executive orders on the first day and everybody's like, yes, look at the executive order. And they're like, oh, in four more years, it gets overturned. It's asinine that we think that this is a great system, right? And so what we need to do is we need to advocate and talk to our legislators about you have to get off your blessed assurance and do some actual work. 
right? You have to actually work with the other side because you have to do that. And you also actually have to make laws that help the people rather than um, fighting about culture wars. Like, I'm so sick of seeing you guys talk about Big Bird uh, on the on the house floor like why are we doing this when people are dying like why are we talking about drag shows on on the house floor and talking about them and you're not going to do nothing to them anyway because you can't so why don't you actually do make regulations that actually help right and so we need to tell our our lawmakers do your job and that's why i like I like this uh, bill in the Senate that uh, Senator Vance and Senator Brown worked together on. Now, I have my issues uh, with the bill, but it's showing me that at least on a situation that they both are in Ohio, they can work together for the people, right? And that's what we need to do. Like, I'm not, I'm a more progressive person, right? And so me and Senator Vance probably disagree on 103 things, 103% of things, right? Uh, but the fact that he was able to at least make a semi-decent bill uh, with a progressive, I have to be able to say, all right, that was a good deal. Like, you're, you're terrible at this, this, and this, but we need to get back to ask, asking our lawmakers to work together because if we have, in a year and a half, if we have someone like the past that took a lot of these regulations off, I'll say it that way, right? Um, then what are we going to do because we have gridlock in Washington still? So even when one party has control, it's still always gridlock because no one is going to get to the point where they have 60 votes in the Senate uh, in our country today because of how we gerrymander on both sides, by the way, um, and how we do that. So no one's going to get uh, to vote for the people, and there's no one – I always see like um, our um, our um, director of development's dad. Um, he was my pastor for many years, and we always get into arguments about things. And I always say like, there's nobody working like Bill Clinton worked with Newt Gingrich to make. I mean, shitty laws, by the way. There are a lot of shitty laws they did together, right? But they still balance the budget. Right? How do, how do we get back to a time where Democrats and Republicans, and how do we get back to a, a point where they actually work together for the people instead of trying to get on CNN or Fox News or having a soundbite on Facebook or Twitter? Like, that's what we need to worry about. Like, we should just take them off of Twitter because that's what they're doing on the floor. Like, I'm about to kill them on this soundbite. But that's not helping people. Well, I think we could open up a whole other yeah. discussion. Uh, thank you, Daniel. And uh, yeah, we'll see you uh, 2024. What are you thinking? All right. Um, <laughs> so thank you all for being here. And thank you once again to our panelists, Emily, Kim, Divya, and Daniel, for joining us tonight at the Happy Dog. Tonight's forum is part of the City Club in the Community Series, sponsored by Bank of America. Be sure to join the City Club next Tuesday, April 11th, as we welcome our state champion head coach, Ted Ginn, right, uh, with the Glenville Tarblooders. He will be in conversation with IdeaStream Public Media's Mike McIntyre. Tickets are still available for this forum, and you can purchase them and learn more about other forums at cityclub.org. 
And lastly, thank you members and friends of the City Club, both here and in person at the Happy Dog and streaming live. Again, I'm Stephen Love, and this forum is now adjourned.